Hi, everybody. This is Isaac. Thanks for listening to the pod today. I'm here with Brian. Say hello, Brian. Hi, Brian. Oh my God. I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, let's start over. Sorry. Uh, I I did that because... Keep that in. Keep that in. See, this is is the thing where... The boomer energy that you're exuding is going to get you canceled. Literally, when you said that, my wife called me on my iPad right here and so I was not thinking. I just said it. (sighs) Boomer energy. I'm I'm not a boomer, just for clarification. So, Yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, welcome to our guest today, Melissa Flora-Bixler. Melissa, thanks so much for coming on the pod. Yeah. It's good to be here with you guys. Melissa is the pastor at Raleigh Mennonite. Uh, last year, she wrote an awesome book called Fire by Night, which is uh, one of the best books on the Old Testament I've read in a long time. So everybody check that out. And you're working on a project right now. I don't know how much you want to say about it or not, but feel free to plug that right now if you want. Yeah, thanks. Got pretty close to turning in a manuscript for a second book with Harold Press about enemies and how to have them. So... It's tough to find a title for a book like this, but um, How to Have Enemies is the one that we're kind of working with right now. So yeah, more information about that soon, but definitely seemed like a time in the life of the church in the US to dig a little bit deeper into what it means to have enemies and how to have them well. Well, I'm glad you said that because have you thought about not having enemies because I just read a book by Eugene Cho called Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. And uh, I'm convinced that that's the prophetic call for the church right now as we approach this extremely divisive election. It's ripping apart our congregation. You can't even have a Thanksgiving dinner with your racist uncle these days. Uh, How are we going to fix the hurt in the soul of this nation? This was not pre-planned, but I actually have a chapter about your racist uncle at the Thanksgiving dinner table. <laughs> no. no lie. Does he actually talk about that? Is that an example? No. No, okay. no. That, I was just I was just riffing on the tropes at this okay. point. What <laughs> what is happening right now? Um, but yeah, I yeah, stay tuned for all the um all the information you need about your racist uncle. Do we all have racist uncles? Like, what is Brian? Yeah, yeah. Melissa. I mean, yeah. Mine are more like racist former people I played football with in high school, and then I, I forget that I'm following them on Facebook until they pop up. Uh, most of my family is is either too Midwestern to be overtly racist online um, if they have those tendencies. So I, I don't see it a lot. I see it more in like. Who is this person? Oh, somebody I dated my sophomore year of high school. Okay. Yep. With, the, with the hot theological take of Brian, have you ever considered the Bible? It's like, all right, do you want to go down that path? Let's do it. So, In all seriousness, wait, Melissa, sorry, I didn't give you a chance to pontificate on your racist uncle. Yeah, I, I've got one. I think it's, you know, the after a certain uh, number of generations of living in the United States, that sort of like a, a genetic impossibility to not not have a racist uncle. So yeah, I've got one of those. And will he be listening to the pod? <laughs> Can we give him that's, a shout out? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm obviously doubtful about that, um, but my mom will be most likely. <laughs> <laughs> this is the well, Melissa's mom, you have free a standing invitation <laughs> 
to come down to the pod farm and host some rows with the good folks at Until We Get Canceled anytime you want, with or without Melissa. This is a safe space for you to drop takes. <laughs> I was going to say, I told my mom about this than what we were talking about. And she was just, I could just hear the like... um polite kind of um, thing that she had brought me up as, like just deflating, like everything that she had planned for me in life to not talk about this kind of stuff in public, to not be, have any kind of takes whatsoever, just to be like smiling and say, oh, that's great. I'm glad that you feel that way. Uh, this is, you know, the, the idea of unity that we're, that we're going to be talking about at some point is is big on my mom's um I guess top virtues. So I was telling her, I was like, "Oh yeah, you can come on the pod, and we'll give you, we'll give you the mom corner, and you can tell us all about that." So she's like, "Oh, that sounds like the worst idea ever." Um, so it's like, I don't know. It's weird to have like those two things of like the people who are out there kind of having these crazy takes on everything, like just loud, 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 and then having your other ear this idea of like, "Don't say anything. Don't ever be a part of that," because it's better to kind of just rise above. You know what I'm saying? To have like always be above uh, reproach in in these kind of conversations. So. Wait, are you Methodist too? Formerly Methodist, yeah. Well, I am now an Episcopalian. And it's funny because we just had this huge conversation in one of my classes for ordination about unity and how unity is like this kind of like thing about the church that, you know, we always come back to. So I'm going to have to fight against some of that. I'm going to have to be clever in my in my responses in case anybody on the, the Commission on Ministry ever listens to this. <laughs> yeah, it's, as the, if, we, if it was a Drake song, it'd be unity for what? You know? <laughs> That's the, there you go. Melissa, We've already kind of like, again, acknowledged all the cliches, but let's just get straight into the topic. Why are so many white Christians obsessed with fetishizing unity and, you know, politeness and being sort of silently compliant with whatever extremism that you hear, especially, I mean, we can talk about it in general, but especially around election time. It seems like this is the time where unity becomes the all-encompassing virtue. And I was actually really interested to see if this election, it would still be the same. Um, I thought this might like, break the dam. Um, and much to my horror, even this has, even this election with Donald Trump, an alleged rapist, white supremacist, uh, who we just found out was deeply involved in separating nursing babies from their mothers at the border is still somehow within the realm of something that Christians need to be unified around. Um, and it, I've, I, my suspicion of that is that we are a people who uh, recognize the consequences if we actually were to take our materialism a little more seriously. Uh, so th I think there's this, I think there are fears about what it could mean for your church budget and you getting fired. Like I, I don't think those are unreasonable, unreasonable issues for congregations, especially right now. Um, but I just also think that um, at the end of the day, the people who often, who most often make these calls for unity are not the people who are going to struggle if uh, Donald Trump wins the election again, right? Like yeah. if you actually have nothing material on the line, then these are just ideologies for you. Um, and so it's like, um, and, so, and so the ability to even uh, 
contemplate the idea of unity says something more about, I think, your your racial and social social location than just about anything else. Hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the big takeaways of the Trump era is, I mean, uh, you know, you referenced the uh, Inspector General report about the family separation policy in 2018 at the border. This report is still not coming out. It still hasn't come out yet in full, but it got leaked to the New York Times and, you know, just talks about like the, at the time, the media, the president, you know, the president and Jeff Sessions, the attorney general at the time really tried to kind of obfuscate and, and pass the blame back and forth between like Homeland Security and all these different folks. Like, well, we never really ordered specific uh, separation of families and then here we are, we have emails from them saying to each other, we have to separate families as a deterrent. We, it doesn't matter how young the kids are. We need to take them away from their parents so that we send a message to Central American migrants, a majority of whom that I've seen at the border are indigenous, not to come because we'll take your children away. And then we know in the aftermath of that, Thousands of kids were separated from their parents, put into the adoption system and foster care system in the United States, and then the government completely lost track of them. So most of those kids will never see their parents again. So, you know, there was just this mass kidnapping. And I, I think that sort of, a, you know, they're kind of, you're absolutely right that your social location determines how much you even know about that. Uh, but also, I think the 24 hour sort of nature of our news cycle, there isn't a single story that really has life beyond 24 hours in, in, some, in some instances. But I think that until the pandemic, uh, I don't really think most white people felt any difference in the country because of Trump than they did under Obama or George W. Bush. What do y'all think? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's true. You know, when, when it first happened, we have, um, I was telling uh, Isaac before we started recording that my daughter was giving me all of her uh, election hot takes. And I said, where do you get this from? And she's like, oh, it's from radical lesbian TikTok. I was like, oh, all right. Sounds like a good place. Uh, so like we have a daughter who, you know, is is gay. And so after that happens, like, oh, well, we'll just move. And so it was like this immediate thing of like, oh, well, we have the means and the ability to kind of do that. So I think that that is 100% fair and realistic. I guess... I have a follow-up question. So, Melissa, I'll, I'll just throw it to you on that. But I have a question about this, about how we get from putting kids in cages to a place of like, well, we need to pray for for Donald Trump because of um, he's sick right now. And I, I have a broader question on that after this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do think that's that's true that, that many white people did not feel effects from the Trump administration. And... But but what is also baffling, which I think is like a, a challenge to my my Marxism in some way, is that even pe- poor white people who were deeply, who are deeply affected by the Trump administration policies, their farmlands are being decimated by climate change. They are, they're getting cancer from toxic well water that is comes from lack of regulation. The fact that the vast majority of people who die every year from gun deaths are white men who um, use guns to complete suicide. So even then, there we there's some other narrative that's happening here. I think the the best that I can do right now is Du Bois and the hidden wages of whiteness. Um, that I have a I have a 
chapter in the new book about whiteness as a form of possession, uh, that there is a way that we cannot actually materialize the way that whiteness has uh, in possessed, invaded, taken, taken hold, uh, even at the expense of white people's own lives. They're ch- watching their children um, uh, die of cancer or uh, from lack of access to health care. So even that, but that is also a social location, right? That, that somehow we have so deeply ingrained the United States in whiteness that people are willing to work against their own interests and for this, for what is basically an ideological form of whiteness. Yeah, there's a there's a lot there, but I I, I want to zero in on one thing that kind of should be obvious for a lot of folks, and and I think that you know if we can always kind of carry a line through, uh, specifically for pastors who are listening to this and are thinking about, you know, should I be hammering the unity line in my church or like, what am I going to preach before the election or after or whatever? Like, hopefully this this is going to come out a couple of days before on All Saints Day. And, and hopefully this is a helpful thing for you. But one of the things that I feel like is so missing in all these unity conversations is that white supremacy is bad for everyone involved. It's not like, oh, for some people, it's really good. And like for, you know, and but it's like bad for the non-white people or whatever. But even the people in power, it creates this level of dehumanization that, yeah, I think we have to look at like, you know, the average life expectancy of white men in this country is going down dramatically because of things like suicide and the opioid epidemic and just substance abuse in general. So I just, yeah, sometimes I think there's this misnomer where it's like, oh, if we'll if we don't rock the boat in our congregation, everybody's still fine. And that's just not the case. Like this is killing your congregants too, just like it's killing people, you know, on our black men in the streets. It's just a different kind of death, a much slower one. That's right. And this is why we have to say this over and over and over again. Alicia Garza's line about Black Lives Matter. When black people get free, everybody gets free. Like when you address because of the way that Black people have borne the, in, in a very unique and especially treacherous way, economic degra- degradation, sexualization, incarceration. Once you actually deal with those issues, everybody gets pulled up. Like, like the, the whole point is like, we actually want a new world. We're not here to make life more difficult or, or try to get people to hate each other in your congregation or to stir up controversy. It's this recognition that there is something deeply broken about the way that we are all living right now. Like there's something wrong here for all of us. We are in constant cycles of oppressor and oppression and, and oppressed, of victim and victimizer. And, and we just reiterate those again and again. We reiterate, reiterate those with the carceral system, with our economic system. Um, and so what so the other option besides just like let's just like pretend everything's fine here is just be like, let's actually figure out what it takes to make a new world. And some of y'all are going to have to change. Yeah. So this is kind of leads into what I was going to ask before, which is the, and as we're getting closer to the election and, you know, like I was saying, like the people who are saying like, we have to pray for Donald Trump, we have to be better than this and stuff like this. And so I, I wonder how 
I, I don't understand how people get to that place, right? Like cause all the stuff you're talking, like I feel like one, it's not going to suddenly solve the problem if we elect Joe Biden into presidency. And in some ways, there's going to be some of those problems that are just happening and under a different veneer. And it's going to make people like me and, and my kind of social location feel more comfortable about the world and be able to kind of back off a little bit. But I am interested in, and if it doesn't fit right here, we can talk about it later, but about how, you know, you're talking about, I guess, on, on one hand, on a socioeconomic level, there's very obvious reasons how people are kind of voting against their own interests or supporting things that are against their own interests. But then I see this in the other way of like, aren't we doing the same thing kind of for, for these people who are like Rachel Maddow is the one I'm thinking of. I guess I don't need to pull any punches. She's been calling Trump like, you know, literally uh, uh, Hitler too or the Hitler reboot or something like that. But then goes on the air and says, we need to pray for him. We don't want to wish anybody is going to die. And I, I struggle in those in between those two places, right? It's like saying that one thing and then saying that other thing. There's a fundamental thing of a question of like, well, what do you actually believe, and how do we think about the world getting better and, and creating this world that's going to kind of do all the things that you were just talking about, Melissa? I don't know if that made any sense, but that's I, I, I just can't get past the, all of the kind of the the calls for like civil civility and prayer, and we need to be a better better than this. It's like this made up belief that somehow we need to rise above at all times, but that rising above actually never gets us anywhere. Yeah, Joe Biden is a fire extinguisher for the the trailer of trash that is floating down the river on fire right now. So at least we can like put it put out the fire even if we can't deal with the other things. Like this is just like a rescue operation from like some very bad things that are happening. And I and I wish that people would just sort of accept that that's sort of what that's that's basically all we're asking right now is for you to just like take a fire extinguisher and put this fire out. Like you are not going to like get like fix the dumpster here um, with Joe Biden. I think that's absolutely correct. And I to that question about what is going on in this moment, I think there is this sort of sense of there is really this virtue that we've applied to they go low, we go high. That Michelle Obama phrase I think has become is that I think that resounded with Christians in some way. That and I think what that often what that actually reveals to me is that there is something suspicious about anger that we should be frightened of of the possibility that someone should be removed from office by an illness that they brought upon themselves with their own ignorance and foolishness. That, that, that there is this deep fear about what that has mean because I don't think that the white church in particular knows how to see anger as something that is a clarifying and refining force within us rather than something to be feared. Or, or just emotion of any kind. I mean, you see this in most mainline worship services. It's, you know, the very staid, like we don't want to get too excited. We might stand up a couple times to sing, but we're going to sit back down. And so what, there's a question of whether it's baked into the institutions and into the theology. Like if those categories are already kind of like, we're starting behind the starting line with, with some of these categories. I cut you off, Isaac, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say um, a couple of things. First, when they go low, we go high. It could be an incredible CCM song about like not <laughs> yes. falling prey to either like seductive women and or non-believers. I'm just saying like there's somebody out there who has time to write some lyrics for that. Please do. And we'll feature it on the pod. I promise. <laughs> new, new intro song. That would be amazing. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I could just hear that, like the that that Hillsong intern that accidentally tweeted from their account. Yes. Write some lyrics. Bring be it to free. us. 
Come on, yes. the pod. let's do it. <laughs> Quit your job and we'll help you find a new one. Anyway, <laughs> it's okay, Brian. <laughs> I, I think on some level, there, there's a lot going on there. I mean, there's a history to sort of emotional paternalism in the mainline that, that goes back a long way, especially, but especially in the early 20th century and Methodism of like, oh, if we're going to have institutional power, we've got to get more respectable. You know, we've got to stop shouting. We got to do these. We got to stop doing these um, camp revivals. We got to stop all the emotionalism. I mean, Anglicans were calling John Wesley, you know, an emotional, an enthusiast. That's what know, they called him, an enthusiast. Yes, yeah. three hundred years ago. But I, on a deeper level, though, I, I do want to kind of um, ask one specific question to Melissa about the anger thing, how much of that is rooted in the way that we think about God in the Old Testament? I mean, do you think it's related or do you think it's a different cause? I think that has a lot to do with it is the, you know, I I think people even started to mention, well, what about the imprecatory Psalms? And it's it's like this huge swath of the prayers that have been given to us, prayers that Jesus prays in the the gospels are somehow no longer relevant to this. But I see those reflections even in in the New Testament. I mean, that the first thing people go to is um, Jesus says, pray for your enemies, which is actually very open-ended, but somehow Zechariah's song or the Magnificat are not examples of those prayers. And so there is, I think, this there is a continuing lineage that we know of anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism that assigns that the, this type of praying or this is, is uh, off here in this world before Jesus told us how we were actually supposed to be towards our enemies. This is what I was trying to get at. There's, I think there's this like fiction out there that we can't operate in this space as Christians, that we have to be in this space of constantly, it's like a weird thing of like, love your enemies, turn the other cheek. And then that devoids or like voids out everything else that's in the, in, in the Bible. I mean, one of the things that I was going to mention too, is that on Twitter, you put something to the effect of, you, you referenced the Magnificat, like cast down uh, the mighty. And then I think it was like the day before Trump got, uh, went to Walter Reed and it was like, oh, there it is. It's like, you know, just don't, don't ask for what you want because here it comes. Yeah, so. I was all these people trying to unpray my prayer. I could not believe that. I'm like, <laughs> I have been literally praying this every morning for four years. And finally, this man is humbled and y'all praying against, against my prayer. What's going on here? I didn't understand that. I did not appreciate that, white people. Well, Melissa, I just I want to tee you up to to keep going on this because one of the reasons why we invited you on the pod for this episode, not that we need an excuse any other time for you to to give you a platform for takes because they're wonderful takes, but your spe- this specific sort of moment where I thought, oh, we need to we need to talk about this was a tweet that you did last month about the church is not. This is a an Isaac paraphrase. The church is not a place where Democrats and Republicans are called to be united. And I guess I just, you got a lot of heat for it. And um, I just want to hear you talk about like, were you surprised by that reaction? What were people missing when they responded that way? And like, especially coming, you know, I, I don't want to like group together your Twitter audience, but seemingly from you know, a quote unquote progressive Christian angle, there were a lot of people that were pissed about what you tweeted. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is um, 
where you go with um, Twitter help or you have to explain your, your tweets on podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> explain yourself. <laughs> the, the Twitter hell would be that we, we, we lined up some of the Theo bros. The tweet that you wrote like in between virtual schooling your three children and like, you know, and writing a sermon. Um, yeah, no, but I think it's true. Uh, yeah, I stand by it. I stand by that tweet. That came out of this the same conversation we're having now, which is, um, I'm not making this up, that people do think that there is a virtue to saying, I have Republicans and Democrats in my congregation. And I want to know, why is that a virtue to you? Like, I need an explanation. That is not uh, an obvious good to me. And so it is actually up to people who think that that's an, that there is a moral, ethical, spiritual good to that to explain to me why that is. And, and the reason that feels like a false premise in a lot of ways is it, is it sort of imagined that these, these like, it, it also just feels like a pretty political, politically vacuous way of thinking about the way that we actually live. Like there are these two little groups and we've all checked the box for all the things that Republicans believe and I'll check the box for things that Democrats. I do not have a purple congregation and I feel perfectly fine about that. And I don't think that there, and I think there are probably 30 different ways that people in my congregation express their political identities and things that they believe. I mean, I've got people who are like, the campaign director for Biden for women. And I've got like people who are like Antifa chaplains, you know, like we have people all over the place because actually politics is a much more broad way of imagining life than, than these sort of two camps. So even the virtue of that feels like a very politically thin way of imagining um, what even unity could be. Um, And it also, I think, doesn't take into account that at this moment in particular, there are a lot of problems with the Republican Party in particular, (laughs) that if you are willing to say, oh, yes, I'm perfectly fine voting for a white supremacist because of these issues, that's actually the limits of my tolerance. Like I, that, I actually do have a limit of tolerance. Um, Asking uh, people to, to tolerate the intolerable is not something that the church should find as a virtue. Yeah, there, there are a couple of things I want to... Uh, there's a thread that I want to connect to something that we said earlier, but, you know, and it's the disconnect from the material conditions of the people who see the church this way. And I think it's the same, is that, you know, somehow having Democrats and Republicans in your church is like winning the diversity game. And if you want to tell people who are Republican that they can't be a part of your community or that they have to reckon with these sort of things, then somehow you're being exclusive, right? And and there's, you know, no worse thing you can be in a church other, you know, than like asking people to make some sort of commitment to discipleship or whatever it is. But I think that's the same thing, you know, and this kind of goes back to your point, Brian, earlier about Rachel Maddow and the media and the way that they fawn over uh, over political figures. And, and I actually don't even think Trump is the best example of this. I think it's someone like John McCain, a guy who did, you know, horrible things all throughout his political career and then was eulogized to high heaven. I think we're going to see the exact same thing when George W. Bush dies or if Henry Kissinger ever dies. You know, if we want to talk about prayers. The guy is, come on, COVID. I mean, Trump has apparently spread it to every single person in Washington, D.C. And Henry Kissinger 
is still breathing. I mean, I, he's got a crab dance with his name on it, and I need to see it. Anyway, is that it's a game, right? Is that it's a game. And so politics for these people is a game, and you are either winning the game or you're losing the game, but you have to respect the players. Even Nancy Pelosi, just like last week, was like, we need the GOP. We need a strong Republican Party. Why? She doesn't want to say. I mean, we know why, because of class solidarity. But, you know, she's worth hundreds of millions of dollars and don't want to pay taxes and give that up. But still, I just, to me, it comes back to that same thing about like, well, we've made, we've valorized this notion of inclusivity to the point of basically making your self-identification as a Christian the only criteria for walking in the door. Yeah, and I'm actually, you know, it's, I think there is always this, um, like churches are places people go. Like you can go into any church you want. Um, and if you actually are somebody who thinks that it is okay to separate a mother from her nursing child at the border and then um, traffic that child into the United States, then you're going to feel uncomfortable at my church. Um, and it's not my job to make you to make you feel comfortable. I, because to, that's the God that we worship. Like that is that um, right. over and over again. What the it is the material conditions of the world. It is that that help us to understand and to identify the God that we worship in common. I do not worship the same God as every person who claims to be a Christian. I just don't. I have, I don't care. You can call yourself a Christian all day long. It is a sociological category. It's helpful for some things. It's unhelpful for other things. But I know pretty well when I am not worshiping the same God as somebody else. Like I, I, have, a, I have a pretty good sense because I'm in a community that helps me figure that out every single day. <laughs> and so I don't need, I don't need unity around false, around false gods or like calling something, calling something Jesus that, that just isn't. Yeah, and that gets to the to the tweet and to something that you said, Isaac, which is this idea of like discipleship and like being in a community with the expectation- We that live in a society. What's that? I said, we live in a society. I'm not going down there. Uh, hello, Brian. Uh, anyway, I, um, but you threw me off my, my point. This is going to be my, my big point of the, of the podcast, Isaac. No, but I think this idea, there's an, there's an, there's, an, there's I, I only get two points per podcast. You can't mess with them. Um, but no, the, uh, but the idea that going into a community does not, is not going to affect some change in you spiritually. And I would say then politically at the same time, because there's one, those two things don't live separate. And I think that's a lot of times what people want is they want me to be able to function outside of the church in this way so that my 401k stays good and that I make hard business decisions, but also I'm going to come and receive communion on Sunday. And and that absolution, like at least in the Anglican tradition, like doesn't necessarily mean anything at that point. Or, or it becomes just like, well, that's my out. I, I don't even think most people are operating on that level. So that's a whole different story. But I think that there's something to that, that, you know, that the expectation that you're going to walk into that church and not be changed is weird. And But then the flip side of that is in more conservative congregations, like, what does that look like there? Are we are we setting up for these kind of just like two two polar opposites that are going to battle to the death of Christian, uh, you know, Christian theology? I, I don't know, but that that's kind of what I'm thinking about. Melissa, I want to ask you, sort of. Sorry, now my train of thought is gone. Did I just shut I, it down? Did I just bring like the 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 worst point of all, the hottest worst the, the the least hot take of all time and just like shut the whole podcast down? I, that's my that's you, my role. You can never shut me down, Brian. That would be brought I, I will to you always by come up with a new take. Yeah, <laughs> Brian's Brian's tepid take by Olive brought to you by Olive Garden. <laughs> yeah, it is a maybe Golden Corral. It's a little more tepid. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. We're missing the spiciest member of our pod today, <laughs> Carrie. Shout out to Carrie. So one of the things though that I, that I want to specifically talk about, because again, I'm trying to think about pastors who might listen to this and are like, they need a lifeline because they they feel the sort of difficulty or the tension that we've talked about, but like they don't have people in their ear who are helping them sort of move past what I see as the most common sort of thing in the Methodist church is like, okay, well, we, you know, if I, if you are the pastor of a primarily conservative Trump supporting group of people, the thing that I see happening and like popping up on my Facebook feed or in Twitter or whatever and sermon previews is it's not about red or blue. It's about, you know, worshiping God or whatever. It's like, it's like, you know, one party doesn't have a claim on the other. And somehow by like taking myself completely out of the political frame, I have, you know, diffused any potential sort of outcome where you take, you, the congregation, take something I say as like directed towards one of those. So now I'm speaking apolitically within the church about how we all just need to trust God or love one another or whatever. I mean, what I mean, how would you respond to that? And how does your work on enemies kind of present an alternative? I think everything that we need to do this is in the Gospels. And it really does not... Um, this is a, what is, I think, the most baffling about this is it, it actually doesn't take that much work to actually see that the material conditions of the world are what reshape a new social order that we call the reign of God that people live into. And we get to see what that looks like in the acts in the epistles, right? That's, that is, that's the thread of the new Testament and it's anticipated for us and we can recognize it because of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, this, so this is, this is the full narrative of God's work among us. And so I think that at the end of the day, we preach the gospel and then we let things lie where they're going to lie. It is not a question, but a prophecy that we will be divided from the people who say they are closest to us. That is, Jesus actually says this is going to happen. We, we, it, is not, it is not a probable, it is a, a for sure thing. And so at the end of the day, I think that what, what it means to say that we're people of faith is to trust that we preach the gospel and then things land where they're going to land. And um, we are not a, we are not called to be in this role of spiritually supporting people wherever they're at in this moment. I was asked to do a podcast recently to talk about by by people who I don't think knew me quite as well. Like, how do we do pastoral care for people after the election for it, whoever their group who lost? Like if whoever, whoever lost the election, those people would be in a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety about the future. And I was like, no, 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 that is not, that is not what... And don't do that podcast. Like, that is not a helpful way to think about about this. Like after the election, we're either going to need to organize like we have never organized before because we are going to have people who are in serious, serious danger, um, that their marriages are in danger, their bodies are in danger, their children are in danger, or we're going to have to hold somebody's feet to the fire um, as we try to figure out how to take this very tepid 
and silly form of centrism into something that may actually be uh, life-giving in some small ways with a lot of pressure from all of us. That is what we do after the election. And that is going to take a lot of organizing from all of us. So I, and I, and I, I say this, and I know if you are a pastor listening to this and thinking like, I'm about to like drive two hours to my church in, in rural North Carolina, and you have no idea what I'm up against. I want, to, I want you to know, I hear that. Like, I, I understand that there are people who, have, who are trying, you're trying to move from A to Z. And for some of us, we are playing the long game. And at certain points, though, think that we need people to discern with who we can actually honestly say, I realize I'm pulling back on this because I don't want to, because I just don't want to take the heat right now. I think we need people who we can be honest about that or who we can say, you know what? I recognize that I am in a white supremacist congregation. I was placed here because this is where my bishop said that I was supposed to be. And what do I need to do um, in the next six months that isn't going to compromise the, the parts of me that, um, that in compromising them would make it actually impossible for me to be a minister of Jesus Christ? But what also can I do to, to begin to move these folks along? And when do I finally say, I have to shake the dust off my feet? I cannot become a martyr to this congregation. That is not the purpose of our ministry is to let ourselves be burnt out on people who want nothing to do with the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think we need people to help us figure that out. We we should just put that bit on loop because, you know, I, I so I, uh, it's tough. I If you are listening to this podcast and in that situation, I've been there you know, I've I've served rural congregations. I've served an urban one. I've served, you know, quote unquote conservative congregations and and quote unquote progressive ones. But I, I think the biggest thing to me is that on some level, I would just say that um, it's a. I think it's always, in my opinion, uh, or in my experience, not telling people who you are as a pastor and what you believe in. That is not a virtue, even though it's frequently associated with these same conversations that somehow the way you feel should be a secret. You know, I, my dad's a pastor. He absolutely agreed with that. He, he will not tell you who he voted for. And, you know, because he, he's like, that's, that's a private thing. Like, and I think a lot of people who are pastoring congregations that are politically different from them feel like they just have to like hide that aspect. I, you know, I disagree. Maybe it's not from the pulpit. Maybe that's not where you share it, but share it somewhere. And I think the biggest and best way to do it is it goes back to something we talked about at the beginning or in the, you just referenced is that even in those spaces, and this kind of gets to that original misconception, the folks that you're serving are being killed by white supremacy just like everybody else and organizing in some way that sort of connects what you believe to an action that you can do that helps them. It's going to be far more powerful than like dropping a bomb in the pulpit or whatever else. Because I bet there are people in your congregation who are incarcerated, who are like lacking resources to get healthy food, who have 
thousands of dollars in medical debt, who are disconnected from the appropriate medical care to begin with, who are hours away from their family and are in need of support as an elderly person. Like organizing in that way and mutual aid is a thing that the church needs to embrace on a on a deeper level, like you just said, because the other sort of um, reality behind all of this conversation. After we're done with the fire extinguisher, we have to confront, you know, generational climate change that might make human life, you know, and all non non-human life on this planet disappear in like the next twenty years. So if you're worried about like your retirement and you're a pastor. <laughs> You're not going to retire, okay? The world is just going to fall to pieces instead. So like on some level, we need to be working and focusing on building these mutual aid networks to help us get free and and to, to show folks that these questions about racism, about white supremacy, all of them have material conditions that dictate our response and relationship to them. And if you feel like you can't, get through to your congregation and the pulpit, then get through to them by organizing and helping them because this is all about the conditions on the ground in your community, who's vulnerable and who's not, who has access and who doesn't, and the violent responses when people who don't have access ask for it. This is There's a certain amount of like empathy, having to have empathy and I have a feeling you're going to dunk on this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, but a certain amount of empathy for the lied to in, in what you're saying, right? So it's like, there's there is that thing I think like you were saying like that idea of like dropping a bomb from the from the pulpit is a, a way that people think they have to go out but it, it a lot of times like severs any kind of work that you might be able to do after that and so like that's something when I worked in Tennessee <laughs> I had a kid this is back like along when Obama was first running for president and I I had it a thing that had been sent to me in my in my bag my bag was open and he walked by and he picked it up and he says. Brian, he goes, you're not voting for Obama, are you? And before I could like say anything, he was like, he's for the poor people. And I was like, Connor. And so it's like, you know, there's a moment right there where you can tell a, tell that person like and just blow them up right there or a moment you can do what you're talking about. And, and I know that there's a, again, going with the little tepid actions here, that there's a, there's a sense of that. But I think that what you're talking about is like that organizing them to show them as opposed to just telling them there's a, there's a difference in, in play there between those two things. Yeah. I'm- Especially preach that that idea of you know that we're even moving towards mutual aid or helping people to sort of dis uh, disconnect from a lot of these lies about about wealth and that are that are actually inaccessible to most people. Um, that this uh, I've I've seen people in my congregation struggle over and over again with asking for help <laughs> because because the lie that they are told that is that even people who are pretty knowledgeable about things is that somehow their debt is their fault instead of that it is somehow um, ingrained into a predatory economic system that has made Jeff Bezos a trillionaire off the backs of people during this pandemic. Right. And so, so this, there's always these opportunities to, um, to, to break open these myths that are actually the underlying myths of the culture of white supremacy that we live in. You don't need to, I don't even, you don't even have to mention white supremacy for months and months to be able to sort of chip away at some of these underlying foundational beliefs, um, about, about who we are, what we deserve. Who um, who has the right to access of certain things? 
who's going to be able to get there if they work hard enough, um, the structural barriers for vast amounts of people in order to have the things just that they need to survive. Um, all of that is the groundwork of white supremacy. And we can, we can begin to dismantle that in any context that we're in. And I think that there is, I think there is a conversation that, and you kind of have alluded to this and, and we have talked about it, but the idea of what, after the fire extinguisher and when Biden, or if Biden is in office, that the fact that um, that stuff isn't equally as relevant to somebody who might vote Democrat as opposed to, because I think there is a liberal move that's like, well, the Republicans have to do all of this work. Uh, whereas I, everything that you're saying, like I think about our situation and how, even though at this point we are fairly comfortably middle class, it probably actually more than that at this point. But it's like, that's all on a, it, it's, it's tenuous, right? It's tenuous based on some things that we've bought into that we say that we believe in from an economic and a societal standpoint, and it could all go away immediately. And I think there's a lot of people that don't acknowledge that on both sides, but I think on the left, we tend to not think about it as much because we can focus on it on people who maybe um, are either the super wealthy or uh, the people who are struggling with uh, in, in poverty. And it's easy to kind of project that stuff back onto them rather than seeing it. Yeah, I mean, this goes place. back to what Isaac said about Nancy Pelosi saying we need a strong GOP. She doesn't say, oh, we need a strong left push <laughs> that's going to really call into question very... Um, fabric of the carceral state because the state itself, both Democrats and Republicans, are are conservatives. They want to conserve the uh, the roots of this country, which are white supremacist patriarchal roots. Like, uh, and this is why the why one of the primary jobs of policing is to restrict social movements like across the world. Um, because it is because the, the stasis is what the state wants, right? It's a, that's its purpose, and so this is never about like getting your congregation to vote for Biden. That would be the most boring thing, the most boring thing that you could focus on at this moment. But it is also not to unify around this sort of false idea um, that somehow these are all just ideas out there. Um, that really have nothing to do with our spiritual lives or um, or our community together. Um, if you have people who are oppressing each other in your congregation um, and they go up to take communion together, do you know what 1 Corinthians 12 says is going to happen to those people? They could die. That's what it says in the Bible. Like, I, I'm always like, why am I the only person who's ever worried about that? Like, and why are we why are we talking about that? All y'all are talking about praying for Donald Trump, and I'm worried about like people dying in communion. Like, yeah, I don't get it. It's because I'm a I'm a fundamentalist. I I read the Bible literally, and I'm like, <laughs> I think that's what the teenagers call a mood. Well, okay, but Melissa, <laughs> you're singing my song here, and but I <laughs> this is why. Uh, you you always you're always welcome on on the pod, but I I want to I want to just tag on to one thing that you said, which is that it's not just um, it's not just the political parties that are conservative things. It's your mainline institution, UMC folks, Lutheran folks, Episcopal folks. They also they were established for the purpose of maintaining this type 
of world and this type of political order and this type of social order. And that's why you see crap like this getting pushed on you by the people in power over you within the mainline church, because it's their job come election time to make sure that their pastors are not out there fomenting any sort of change, one or the other. And, you know, this is Melissa and I first connected over doing statue Bible studies about Confederate idols in in the South, uh, in Raleigh and in Charlottesville, and talking about biblical reasons to tear them down. And, and one of the biggest things that stuck out in my mind leading these studies about statues, Confederate monuments in Charlottesville, is that at every single installation ceremony, there are three institutions represented every single time. The government of you know the state of Virginia, either the governor was there or the mayor, senators, whoever, some politician, the president of the University of Virginia, and pastors from the biggest churches in town, all three together to bless these monuments to Confederate generals. And so, you know, if you're sitting around looking at the landscape in the UMC or whatever else, it shouldn't be a secret or a surprise that they're pushing this sort of false unity crap because that's what they exist to uphold and secure. The Episcopal Church was literally founded as a, uh, tried to, to, to uh, intentionally be a national church that was close to the seat of power so that they could, in theory, um, sanctify the nation through from, from the core outward. And there's a lot of, it's interesting because with the politics of a lot of Episcopalians now, that kind of, and like with all of our national cathedrals and all of this other stuff, there's a lot of questions for that exact same thing is like, we've never even like accounted for that in our past. We're kind of just like moving forward on these progressive issues and have not kind of just thought about the fact of like, and it's, this is whatever, but this is one of the reasons why we're having such a hard time with like the idea of how the church is going to survive is because it's survive. It's, it's, it's entire identity is tied to uh, the fact that it is in a place of power and at the seat of power, uh, specifically in Washington, DC. So and if you want a concrete example of that in the UMC, you know, going back to child separation, and, and this is in the news because of that Inspector General report, but at the time, Jeff Sessions, you know, hundreds of United Methodists brought charges against him. Jeff Sessions is a United Methodist. He was the Attorney General at the time. He gave this order. And, and I want to clarify something because it's always confusing. When you cross the border, not at a port of entry, you cross the border of the United States, it is a civil offense, not a criminal offense. So that means that you go to immigration court. And just like if you get a speeding ticket, you go to traffic court. You don't go to criminal court. So it's the equivalent of giving getting a speeding ticket when you cross the border into the United States. And it plays out, the judicial process plays out in the immigration court. What the zero tolerance family separation policy did was mean that we had mothers and breastfeeding infants standing in front of U.S. attorneys in federal criminal court being charged with a like federal crime for crossing the border, which is not normal under any standard in United States law. And by the way, it also happened and been applied um, specifically to asylum seekers who have an international right to enter the United States and claim asylum in this country. Like, And that comes out of our supposed concern about preventing a second Holocaust. So 
what was going on at that time was totally unprecedented, an unprecedented abuse of not only immigration law, but international human rights and all this stuff. And hundreds of people in the United Methodist Church brought charges against Jeff Sessions and his bishop, who is up an elder in connection from my conference, Holston, David Graves, if you're listening to this, the bishop of Jeff Sessions dismissed those charges against him, claiming that he was enacting the official policy of the president, and so it wasn't a personal act and did not constitute a moral act. These, this okay. is, these are the people. These are your enemies, right? This is like this is like if you were a Christian, that's that that is somebody that's your enemy. Go on. He's. I mean, David Graves literally comes up with the Nazi defense, and in this statement where he puts it out, he doesn't reference scripture a single time. Doesn't reference the Book of Discipline a single time. He just says he was doing his job. Just like in dismissing those charges, Bishop Graves was doing his job. Are we in fight corner? I just want to. I just want to clarify. Are we in Chili's fight corner at the moment? Brought to you by Chili's. To- no, we can't be in the fight corner because Carrie's not here. So this maybe could be like the Golden Corral <laughs> fight corner. Fight you in the parking lot of Golden Corral. No, no, it's just the. I have to wait till Carrie comes back. Okay. It's please get right with your with your God because you're gonna be. Held responsible for your actions, David Gray. <laughs> that corner. Sorry. It, yeah, it's that corner. Okay. It's my concern for your your immortal soul. This is like, you know, I like the the Mennonite Church would like to be like all the other uh, all the other nations of the land. Um, you know, they're like have been on a mission for this for a long time with um Harold Bender's the Anabaptist vision, trying to make what is a very unruly form of life into a couple points that you can apply to your to your own uh, religious experience um, that are actually not unique and that are shared by lots of other traditions. Um, so lots of attempts um, from the Mennonite church to try to sort of put itself in the same realm as um, as other denominations and, and to be a, a player on the mainline field. But one thing that I do continue to appreciate is that there are there is at least a couple jobs that you cannot have and be part of the Mennonite church, which just feels like very, that is a really tough pill for a lot of people to swallow about the Mennonite church that you actually can't join. It's tough actually for my church um, because a lot of them are really good liberals. The idea that you can't be in the military and and be a member of the church is is is, is part of our conviction. And... I actually don't know that I know a lot of other churches that that hold to that, that, that there are jobs that you cannot have and be members of the church. As long as you tithe, you can be a part of most churches. Well, you know, the Methodist church for about two seconds in America, you could not own slaves and be baptized in, into the Methodist church. But they backed out of that and that was the first split in uh, the 1840s. But, you know, I, I guess one of one maybe to kind of wrap up because we've been talking for a long time, but one of the last things I'd like to hear you talk about, Melissa, because this is still something that um, kind of mystifies me and maybe I just needed to stop taking it in good faith. But why is it always that the comparison here, when you when we call these things out, when we create the, those sort of barriers, like you can't be a Mennonite if you or in the military, why is that always seen as a type of violence 
and things like, I don't know, like it, it, it seems to be condemned in the same sort of form as like protesters doing property damage. And like that's seen as a bigger threat, right? Even like damaging one of the statues in Charlottesville, like on the second anniversary of August 12th, you know, Virginia sent a thousand state troopers into Charlottesville to guard those damn statues. And then in June, during the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer, uh, a group of teenage activists, Black teenage activists in Charlottesville, organized a protest. And the city spent a hundred grand on, on cops and a surveillance drone to ride over top of the protest while people did the cha-cha slide in the streets. Like, that's the state's response to teenagers saying, hey, let's have a Black Lives Matter protest. And I feel like that, you know, that. so what exactly is the threat there that they're seeing that I think is also seen in so much of the pearl clutching around unity at the election time? I think much like the state is invested in stasis, so is the institution of the church. There's sort of the sense that um, the survival of the institution is, is, is primary. And so what is offensive are overt acts of um, exclusion, um, overt acts of negativity, of anger, all of those destabilize institutions, right? The, that's, that's what, that's, and, and that's what we hear over and over again, right, about this moment um, with Black Lives Matter, um, that there's, it's like, um, it's provocative. It's supposed to be propaganda to make you think beyond, beyond the sort of uh, forms of white civility that have been handed down to us. And instead, we encounter these things that are incredibly destabilizing. What is not destabilizing is if you are, um, uh, you work at Chase Bank and you come to church and somebody in your church is getting um, uh, kicked out of their house because you're refusing to honor people's, um, uh, the eviction um, ban that's, that's, that's currently underway. Um, what's not destabilizing is all of the violence that happens underneath the church that, that nobody sees because nobody wants to talk about it because again, it's destabilizing. Nobody is, nothing is destabilized by us turning aside from the fact that there are people who are going to go out and vote for members of their congregation to be deported back to the countries that they came home from and separated from your church, from their families, from their neighborhoods. That's just a, that's, uh, we can absorb that, um, that kind of violence. What is actually going to destabilize, I think in really healthy and good ways that may actually not allow for institution or institutional survival are those, are naming the, that as a form of violence among us. Um, and when that happens, it will, re it will require the kind of um, dismantling and restructuring that people in power do not want. Totally agree. And I, I want to kind of end on a note about how people can can do this because something you said earlier, you, you know, you said it as sort of like, oh, obviously we just follow the narrative of scripture and read the text in community and that'll help us discern what God wants of the world. And and it's a beautiful summation of something that I think most pastors have never puzzled out and have never thought through because they have never been taught to think about it that way. And so I, I just wonder if you talk a little bit about the way that I feel like so many pastors think like, well, we can we really discern God's will 
And, you know, does the Bible really reflect what God wants? And they just, it, it belongs to that same sort of rhetorical move of saying like, let me step back above the red and blue voices to a place where no one knows anything and we can't be sure about anything. So we never claim something. So could you just describe some of your communal practices that help you not only like think about these questions, but feel like a confidence in them. And wh- wh- what about community is at the heart of that of this is the recognizing who is in the room when you read the text and who is not. Um, and, and sometimes that just happens by thinking about who are in those sort of, in the Venn diagram of your church, that the people, our church runs a one-room preschool for and at-risk children who are almost all Latinx and um, Spanish-speaking, have Spanish-speaking churches they're a part of. And so to, to hear their voices, um, that are that somehow what happens there has something to do with us. Um, our, our church does a lot of work in the prison. And so the women in the prison can't be with us, but somehow that has something to do with us. So I think that's the first thing is to remember that I, I think most of our churches are already in it relationships with people and and know who are in our communities are vulnerable um, and what does it mean to read with um, with their voices in the room as well even in their absence another I think just a big thing for me has been um, a disposition of seriousness but not fear of what it means to read scripture communally and um, so we have an, a shared pulpit. Um, I preach often, but not all the time. The summer, we had a different person from our congregation preach every Sunday. And at the end of that time, there's a 16th century practice from the Mennonite church where we have the opportunity to name if the good news has been preached among us or not, and to discuss what that good news means for our lives. And so even in that moment, and it's actually, I think it's interesting. I was raised in the Episcopal Church. It is the place where the creed would be read is actually the point, is that actually the place oh. where the people are are there to affirm the word. Yeah. Oh man, eyeball um, emoji. So that that I think is <laughs> is significant to me as well. And, and just realizing that in the scripture, in our scriptures, we are told that what we um, bind in heaven, what we bind in earth will be bound in heaven. What we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Like we actually are responsible. We are responsible for interpreting scripture. <laughs> and that one of my favorite lines in, in the Bible, in Acts 12, where they're trying to figure out what to do with these Gentiles and they don't know what to do. And there's all these opposing side. And the, and the line that, that actually guides me in worship every Sunday at this moment where we interpret scripture together is, it was good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So it says, it was good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And they read the scriptures and they, and they trusted that they would catch up to the place where the Holy Spirit had already gone ahead of them. Um, they didn't have to decide. It it. It was about being able to recognize where God was already at work and to catch themselves up to that place, which is a different position than saying, how ought, ought God to act right now? Which I think is often how we respond. But again, reading the gospels, we know that when people are suffering, that's where God is. That is, the, that is what, we don't need any other information. The rich man does not get Lazarus sent back to his 
siblings to tell them this because they already are surrounded every day by the prophets who point them to the dispossessed of the world. And if that is not enough for them, nothing ever will be. Nothing ever will be. If you cannot see God in the people who are suffering around you, it is never going to be enough. And so our opportunity is to open up people to seeing where suffering is happening in our world and to let the Holy Spirit act among us. Yeah, and I think that, yeah, this is a great place to point people who are hearing things for the first time that they've never heard towards the prison abolition movement and abolitionist resources in any context because there's never, there's no more inclusive view of humanity, of restorative justice, of, you know, the gates of the community always being open than the one that says, you know, I, and I think that I've heard you speak really powerfully about this, Melissa, that we are not defined by the worst thing that any one of us has done, right? And it, can you say a little bit about abolition and and how that kind of, if you are a pastor in a space where the power dynamics are shifted against you, how that can be a helpful maybe resource to folks. Yeah, one of my favorite um, resources for this is the um, Transform Harm, which is the hub for a lot of transformative justice and restorative justice work. And um, uh, from Miriam Kava, who is um, one of our um, great pioneers of the, of the movement of restorative justice and um and prison abolition and in our generation, so many who have gone before, um, Angela Davis and others. And, and, but I do think that there is, that, that uncovering the ethic of prison abolition has actually helped me understand the gospel in ways that I didn't before. And, and again, what, um, what I think the, what unlocked the gospel for me was this um, continuing this um, realization that the old order of sin and death is bad for all of us, right? That this, that we are locked into a system of satanic possession that is, that is reified in the carceral state. I mean, it is just, if you want to understand what um, punishment and um, punishment without reparation, um, death and destruction without any hope of reconciliation, the carceral state is is an object lesson in that. And it's one that impacts every single one of our lives. And so this idea that somehow um, there is a possibility for us to address, name and address that harms have actually been done, but there is a way to um, repair those harms or at least to move in that direction um, without the state being charged with that duty is, is the hope of, of the abolition movement, um, which is this collection of, of actions and, um, and attitudes and forms of life that all begin to participate in this wider, um, a wider hope for a world without prisons and without policing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, (sighs) pastors, people in congregations, wrestling with a lot of these things on some level. I hope that, um, I guess like my one wish for you, <laughs> like, <laughs> if I could help. Isaac's one wish. That's a new topic. That's a new uh, bit. There we go. No, no, no. Um, it's just that 
you know what? If you're in a position where like your only opportunity to serve in ministry is to like walk this kind of line, and if that leaves you dead inside, like open up the book of Isaiah and read his like ultimate question, why do you spend time on that which doesn't satisfy in Isaiah 55? And like genuinely think to yourself about um why what power structures exist that have placed you in such a compromised position where you feel like you can't speak an honest word to the people that whose souls are in your care. I mean, I think ultimately the the like most chilling word from Jesus about being in ministry is that, you know, leading people to stumble on the road of the gospel, his response to that will be, it will be better for you if you had a millstone placed around your neck and you were hurled to the bottom of the sea. Like, (laughs) and we, we all need, you know, mermaids coming down and and rescuing us as pastors and taking the millstones off our neck whenever we can. And you need a community around you to help you do that because, we can, we've all we can all get into trouble, but you know, just ministry this way is a choice. This is what I try to say to pastors who claim to be centrist about LGBT inclusion in the United Methodist Church. You're choosing exclusion when you try to to like sit in this middle place. You're choosing a a theology and a community, a communal life that leads LGBT people to consider suicide, to be homeless, all for the sake of the comfort of those who, if you make a bold stance for inclusion, will just go to a different church. That's it. Those are the stakes, folks. If people leave your church because of they can't agree with or they can't see you know, the image of God and the suffering, they'll just go somewhere else. But the people who are suffering will continue to be killed and immiserated and impoverished and assaulted and, and suffer violence for as long as people are not in solidarity with them. And it doesn't mean that you're going to save them, but they'll continue to face those things when you join them. But the question is eventually, you know, they won't be doing it alone and they'll be doing it with people in real solidarity and ultimately will build a movement big enough to to get everybody free. And that's the hope, right? It's not about, I don't know. I'm, I'm like, now I'm preaching, but just, it's a choice. When when you land on this sort of apolitical, amorphous blob bullshit from the pulpit or in your ministry, you're choosing power. You know, it doesn't free you from making a choice. It just like, you make one. And if you talk about it from the place of trying to catch up to where the Holy Spirit already is, you're in some trouble at that point. Choosing power and then also calling on the Holy Spirit to try to get to that same place. Um, yeah, good luck. And I, I mean, to add to that, Isaac, you know, I think the other sort of way that something that we don't understand if we are in positions of historic power, which I am in many ways, you two are in many ways, it's not that these are people who are not in your congregations already. You already have queer folks in your congregation. You may ha- you may have black women in your congregation. You may have other people of color in your congregation. And so I think the question is also you're also making a choice between are you going to create a space where they where they can actually where people who have been historically marginalized in the church and in our country can express anger, can organize 
can know that there are people who are for them or because the only people who bear the burden of tolerance are the people who are being tolerated. That's it. It's a, to people who are, whenever I am in a, I have to sit down. So you have frequently have to do with people who men who don't think that I should be a pastor. What does it matter to them? It's, it's not a big deal. Like their, their, their um, ideology is a defense is offended. At the end of the day, they're always going to get to be pastors and they are always going to get to be in churches where I am, where I do not get to be a pastor. Right. So it, it, this isn't, we also have to recognize that we are also making a choice for people to have to, um, for people who are in power to feel comfortable with the silence, or we're going to create spaces that are safe harbors for people who are suffering oppression in our world and that we are going to be for them. So that's also the choice that we have to make. Um, and you can't actually do both. If you're going to say, well, I know there's a lot of political opinions here and, you know, some of you don't like the president, some of you do, that's not held the same way by everybody in your congregation. Yeah. And and when it comes down to it, if it's a question about money and financial security, I mean, that's so real. But it's at that point where I need everybody to take the uh, the gospel and what Jesus has said, what Jesus says specifically about money and about resources and about abundance, as literally as Melissa has has encouraged you to do today. Because you know, it's the, it's not like um, it's not like Jesus is uh, unaware of these realities, right? When he's when he's sending disciples out without anything, when he's sending, when he's talking about how you need to cut yourself off from your like biological family and like, I, but also he's, he means it when he says things like, uh, if you ask it of the father, like it'll be done for you. Like go back to Matthew 18 and like the whole thing about community life and how to order it like rests on these promises that Christ makes. And and we're either going to believe those and let them say, you know what, like I'm willing to like stake everything on this or not. But I, you know, so far to so far in my experience in ministry, um, every time I've staked something on those promises, it's worked out. And uh, you know, if those aren't real, then Jesus isn't real. He's <laughs> not really the Son of God. He's not raised, and this is all a waste of time, y'all. This has been awesome. I think with everything we've just said pastors, Christians, whoever, we live in an apocalyptic age and all takes will be revealed until we get canceled. <laughs> There's your benediction. Peace. <laughs>